Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 74 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. This is a busy time for the commercial market and captive industry. Our reporter Luke Harrison is just back from the Firma Forum in Copenhagen and we will hear from him and some of his interviewees on the energy transition and role for captives in the second half. But we also have coming up events wise we have Guernsey's 100 year of captive celebration event in London this week where we'll be doing a live GCP episode recording and we also have the European Captive Forum taking place in Luxembourg on the 9th to 10th of November. We will be at both of those events and links to the respective websites for more information are in the episode show notes. In GCP 74 however we are going to start with our quarterly investments update after a particularly tumultuous time in the past few weeks especially of course in the UK market. Later in the episode, we're going to be joined by Jelto Borgman and Dirk Schilling of HDI Global to discuss European captive trends concerning new formation, Solvency 2, Cyber and DNO. But first, let's join our friends then at London and Capital for the Q3 investments update. Shadrach Kwaza, Executive Director, is in conversation with Sanjay Joshi, Head of Fixed Income. It's been a tumultuous few weeks or really months for global markets. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners will want to hear a lot of our views on on markets. So I thought a good place to start would be possibly, you know, could you give us a quick summary of your, your views on the macroeconomic condition at the moment and anything that particularly stands out to you? Pleasure, Shadrach, and good to be uh, good to be joining you again on this. Um, you say tumultuous. I mean, I've been around long enough, so there's been more tumultuous periods in my history in managing money, particularly 2008 and 2009, when it seemed like we may not survive given what was going on in the banking system. But putting that to one side, I think one must remember this is about interest rate policy being reset to reflect the underlying economic fundamentals which we came into this year was a very strong economy and expectations of inflation moving significantly higher. So all of that has to be borne in mind. So where are we right now is that the central banks have tightened monetary policy significantly. They are talking very tough and I recently said that they've gone into Rambo mode because irrespective of the underlying economic fundamentals, they are talking very tough. What do I mean by that? In the background, the global economy is clearly slowing. We would have seen the IMF forecast that came out over the last 24, 48 hours, which is now suggesting that the global economy is going to slow sharply in 2023, with some countries contracting. That has been our base view for some time, that the economic data the confidence numbers, the real economic activity, consumer demand, durable goods numbers, industrial production numbers are all pointing in one direction, which is the economy is weakening. And to some extent, markets have got a little bit concerned that the central banks are still talking tough, but they are seeing a very different economic scenario in the background. So what the markets are beginning to discount is that we will have a harder landing than a soft landing, and that clearly has implications across asset markets. So purely on a macroeconomic perspective, I think it would be true to say for the first time in six months that we are now clearly looking at the probability of a much harder landing in 2023 and a return to below potential growth beyond that. And indeed, the Federal Reserve's own minutes yesterday admit that it is more likely than less likely now that we'll have a prolonged period of below potential growth rates. Thanks, Sanjay. And and just for the sake of our listeners, what would you describe as a hard landing? A hard landing traditionally would be where you get more than just two quarters of GDP declining. So you will get a full year of negative GDP. The probability, as defined by the bond yield curves, is that in the US, uh, with 30-year yields being significantly below two-year yields, that the, the probability of a harder landing is now close to 30 to 40% having been closed to 10% 
earlier this year. In the UK, it's moved a lot further because of all the uncertainty we've had over the last two to three weeks. So hard landing is a quite significant economic contraction compared to a soft landing, which is you could get one or two quarters of GDP declining, but then you revert to positive growth. So one of the points you've mentioned is inflation. would be interested to hear your thoughts on inflation in general and how close are central banks to tackling the, the underlying issues that are driving inflation. This is a critical point. And before I talk about central bank policy, what are we seeing? What are the central banks seeing in terms of inflation? You know, we always look at what is driving inflation. Is it cost push or is it the demand side? Central banks, they can't do a great deal about the supply chain disruptions, but they can certainly control demand. But if you look at some of the key inputs into inflation, and I think it's quite good to look at the US because we have a lot of economic data there. Let's start off with money supply, M2. M2 was rising very rapidly earlier this year. It has now gone back into more normal range and is suggesting it's actually going to fall further. So that's a good positive tick sign. Secondly, look at supply chain pressures. The New York Fed publishes every month what is going on with supply chains, and we're seeing a rapid normalization there. In September, the supply chain index fell to one, just above one, and it's been falling for five months, and it is returning to normality. We look then look at oil prices, natural gas prices, agriculture prices, industrial metal prices. All of these key inputs are also moving lower. In some cases, like natural gas prices, we are 40% below the peak level we had uh, earlier this year. So all of that is also a good green tick. We then look at what is going on in terms of inflation expectations, and we can look at the consumer sentiment indices, and we can look at break-even levels, and all of those are moving towards normality. So they're all good green ticks in terms of inflation movements. The negative, and this has been the negative that has been sustained and is currently still there, is the labor market. The labor market is strong, wage growth, nominal wage growth is still moving higher, and that is where the central banks are focused on. The problem with that is, is that the labor market is a lagging indicator. It responds very late to a weakening economic cycle. So it could well be that the central banks overreact to a lagging indicator. And I always say now increasingly is if you go back 12 months, back to 2021, the central banks were telling us, and most forecasts were also saying, is that inflation was fine, it would come down very rapidly, they didn't need to move, and therefore the central banks took a very gradual approach, a conservative approach, and no one wanted to raise interest rates. We're now 12 months forward, the economy is weakening and the central bankers are telling us, no, we must keep going because inflation is very high. So I see the central banks repeating the mistake of last year, this year. So inflation overall is moving lower. It's going to be a very gradual process. It's not going to fall suddenly from, say, in the UK, 11% to target of 2%. It'll take 12 to 18 months to revert to target, but we will revert to target in 2024 because the economies are going to grow below potential growth rates. You mentioned an, an interesting point there around sort of, I guess, what would be described as, as pol- policy errors um, from the central banks. Um, we, we've also, I guess, recently had, you know, what some are describing as some something of a policy error from um, the government on the UK side, and that's le- led to some um, a lot of volatility in the, in the bond market. Would be interested to hear your views on whether that's sort of an isolated UK event or does that have wider implications for government bonds across the world and sort of the fixed income market in general? I think that's a very important question because clearly what has happened is that the extreme political and policy uncertainty in the UK has undermined the UK asset markets from the currency, but the gilt market where you've seen significant losses linked to LDI. And that has had an impact across global bond markets. The correlation between the gilt market, the treasury market and the bond market has risen markedly. And that is not to say that they are going through the same policy mistakes, but clearly when one of the big G7 bond markets is falling so rapidly, it just 
creates uncertainty across all bond markets. However, I think it's important to differentiate between the UK market and global markets. The UK market is responding to what the market believes is a policy mistake, a policy mistake on fiscal policy by the government and a policy mistake by the Bank of England in terms of their response to what the market was doing following the mini budget on September the 23rd. So it's these two factors combining which has really undermined confidence and of course that has then led to the LDI related selling in the gilt market. Now it's a very interesting point you make is does this have ramifications for global bond markets and I think there is one clear ramification here. If there were any other governments who were going to be tempted to respond to a recession down the route of cutting taxes, they may well think twice because the response we've seen in the gilt market has been significant, it's undermined economic credibility and it has hastened an earlier deep economic recession. So I think it does matter because central banks and governments should also look at the overall financial and economic stability and clearly a lot of investors in the UK and the markets believe that the economic and financial stability has been threatened by the policy mistakes that have taken place. Taking things from a more practical perspective, what does some of the discussion we've had here, what does that mean for portfolios of captive insurers? And, and I'm thinking here around captives that may be invested in fixed income, which is quite common to find in captive portfolios, cash, and those who may be also holding equity investments. Clearly, uh, the last few months would have seen quite negative performance numbers with large markdown, but it's important to remember that for captives invested in government bonds, high-grade corporate bonds, uh, large-cap stocks and large-cap financials, there are no credit concerns. These are mark-to-market losses. Uh, there are now compelling opportunities across the fixed income landscape because ultimately fixed income performance will be driven by what the underlying economic fundamentals are. And as I was saying earlier, inflation will gradually come down, the economies will slow and central banks will reverse course. So yes, things look very bleak when you look at pure mark-to-market losses, but it's important to remember, and I think all captives must always return to the fundamentals. What kind of credits am I holding? What kind of equities am I holding? Our policy has always been, and our advice to all captives is, to stick to companies that have strong credits, have relatively low leverage, have a lot of free cash on their balance sheets, and have very low refinancing risk. If you stick to those basic principles, one will see portfolios coming back into positive territory fairly quickly into 2023 and, and into 2024. And, and are there any sort of particular opportunities here? I'm, I'm thinking perhaps for those companies who may be holding cash. Absolutely. So I think one of the two clear opportunities I would highlight for captives is, first of all, very short-dated government bonds. What you will find is anything maturing 12 months or 24 months out, you can lock in yields of around 4 to 4.5%. A lot of these bonds are trading below par. These are government bonds. So you're talking about AAA, AA uh, types of bonds, 12-month, 24-month maturity. The second opportunity is within high-grade bonds. Uh, so investment grade bonds where there are significant price discounts to par now and for the first time in 12 years you can build a whole portfolio with bonds trading below par that will mature at par, you're going to get your coupon but you get capital growth opportunities. So those two particular sets in particular Shadrach I would highlight also because clearly the capital charges from a solvency perspective are very low but you're talking about investing in high grade bonds. Well, thank you to Shadrach and Sanjay for a very useful explanation of what we have been seeing in the markets and some of the considerations, of course, for captives and their investment portfolios. 
Next up then, let's join Jelto Borgen and Dirk Schilling of HGI Global for their first appearance on the Global Captive Podcast. Jelto and Dirk are experienced captive professionals and have great visibility and insight into the European captive market. And in this conversation, they're going to go on to discuss Solvency 2, the changing mindset of a risk manager once they have a captive, and what they're seeing regarding cyber and DNO in captives. So, Jelto, um, great to have you on to the Global Captive Podcast. What are your general observations of the state of the European captive market over the past two or three quite turbulent years? I would say, like, if you look at the European captive market over the last two or three years, what we are seeing is that established captives are really increasing their underwriting activities. And this is, on the one side, you see the, the increasing limits, which actually we see a lot. And on the other side, what we are also having is that captives are exploring new kind of rich risk, which can be, for example, cyber directors and officers or legal expense insurance. So that's mainly what we see. And of course, there's a lot of talk in the market about captives and ART deals. So I was on the market event two, three weeks ago, and I think it's always one one important topic these days, captives and ART. But what we actually see is that the conversion rate may not be that high as you may expect if you hear the people speaking about this topic. Mm. So we have seen some new formations in Europe, definitely. But I would personally estimate that it's like a small double digit number per year and not something in the hundreds or something like that. Yeah, I'd agree with that observation for sure. It's it's not in the scale that you see in the United States and even some of the offshore jurisdictions, but in the European region domiciles, yeah, I'd say small double digit numbers, but that's certainly a lot more than it was in the kind of the soft market post solvency 2 period as well. Dirk, what are your observations? Yeah, Richard, uh, thanks for having us also from my side. I think the European captive market is in quite a good, quite a starting to new endeavors phase. I will exactly say how I come to that. Looking at the captive market for quite a while now, I've experienced a couple of years ago, it was very about unsecureness due to the new regulation of Solvency 2. Will captives survive the regulatory push? Is the regulatory burden too high? Such sorts of questions, very much insecurity, very much detailed discussions about bits and pieces of regulation, about proportionality. What we see now is exactly what Yalto describes, captives making their point in the market towards the insurers, what they can bear, helping the market filling up capacities and programs which could otherwise not be filled due to capacity restrictions and drawing up of markets. And on the other hand, making their strategic pitch inside the corporation, being able to provide proper insurance for certain types of programs and on the third perspective, looking for alternatives, getting reinsurance capacity in and helping their corporations to build a holistic risk transfer and risk management program. So I think they have stabilized. I think they are on a grown path. And I think the European captive market, therefore, is when it comes to being established in a very good position. You mentioned there, Dirk, and I agree with you that they're kind of we're in a new endeavors phase of, of captive evolution. And I think people are excited about captives again, or they have been for the past few years. How do you think this activity and innovation is impacting or, or changing the role for yourselves, you know, fronting reinsurance partners? For us, it changes the role in, in a couple of manners. So first of all, I think we have to be more open and proactive approaching risk managers coming to us with their captive proposition in looking at different ways to involve the captive. Traditionally, we were used to involving the captive mainly as a reinsurance or participation device on the lower end of the risk spectrum, basically utilized to work on the working layer part of the program or on some lower risk transfer barriers. We are now seeing that we utilize the captives um, also in higher parts. So they have a different risk profile and we have to be very careful in adapting that and consider that in our sorts of calculations. The more important part is as risk managers and captive managers are willing to put in their captives more strategically that we open us up as insurers to involve captives 
to help us mitigate some of the accumulation risk and to be willing to discuss that, for example, in a line of business like cyber, where the markets really shrank because insurers realized um, that the accumulation risk in cyber is very, very high and very severe. But utilizing captives and being willing and open to discuss the inclusion of a captive in such sort of program can secure some sort of insurability of that particular risk. So my first point is being more willing and open to look for captives in different parts of the program. The second part is being more willing and open to discuss different sorts of inclusions in captive with captives in non-traditional programs. Gelto, obviously a big part of the landscape in the European captain market is Solvency 2. You and I are going to be on a, uh, talking about this on, on a panel in Dublin later this month in October about Solvency 2. What are the considerations here for you as fronting partners when regarding Solvency 2 calculations when captives are writing more business and, and taking on more risk, as Dirk explains there? There might be exceptions, but usually what you have, if you're underwriting more risk, you more capital is required. And that's something where usually regulators and fronters agree, right? This is not very often the case, but in this regard, it's, it's the usual case, more business, more capital required because you, do, you have more risk. The thing is that solvency two is just an approximation. And sometimes the approximation of the capital required on the Solvency 2, from my perspective at least, is not very good. Because what you're doing there, it's it's a simple factor model. So I don't want to bore you with the details of Solvency 2. But um, <laughs> to be honest, if you're writing an industrial line of business and you're using data which is resulting from private insurance business you're multiplying the premium you're getting in with with the factor and then you get your risk capital it doesn't fit right and that's what we sometimes have and what we're sometimes our discuss, discussions are coming from because we see a lot of captive managers or risk managers who say, okay, I run the calculation. Our solvency ratio is still at 120%. And why are, are you asking for additional collateral or why are you asking me to inject more capital? And that's really sometimes an issue, right? Because it's for us really difficult to, to argue and we say, okay, we, we run our own calculation and we know it better than solvency too. That's that's really, really a challenge, I would say, that, that we as a fronter have to argue very often that although there is this kind of very complicated framework, which is a model which like has like different sub-modules and give some kind of feeling, okay, I, I know what I do. I have like everything there. There's investment risk on the one side. There's the under writing risk, there is a default risk, all these kind of things. But at the end, I say, okay, yeah, it's there. You run your calculation, but I don't like really believe that they they show what they should show. And therefore, we, we are asking for additional things. And that requires very often a lot of explanation from our side. Paul, while we have seen uh, captive utilization increase and record formation activity during the hard insurance market of the past three years, there has been no let up in legacy transfer activity, has there? Why do you think that is? Well, as captive owners reevaluate their risk financing strategies and review their captive portfolio, one output can be to look at selling or transferring legacy business in order to free up capital that they can then use to support new programs or provide extra capacity for lines of insurance proving particularly problematic to place elsewhere. If that is an avenue captive owners wish to pursue, Paul, how can R&Q support them in the execution? Well, Richard, there are all manners of execution, from novation and loss portfolio transfer, which is effectively reinsurance, to a complete business transfer or a full sale of the captive. R&Q has a proven track record over the last 13 years in all of these strategies, over 70 captive transactions across 36 regulatory jurisdictions. We're experienced in working with captive owners, managers, TPAs and fronting partners to ensure the right solution is found for all parties whilst protecting the reputation of the captive owner for the life of the liabilities. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. Dirk, you mentioned what we discussed at the start about kind of the increase in activity in Europe and increase in new captive formations. Are you seeing any obvious observations of a changing profile or attitude in these new generation of captives? 
When we speak about profile, we don't haven't really seen um, too much of changes. So the new captive really take the old captives, the established captives in the German market as their blueprint. They form on the experiences they have made and start basically on the same page. This comes also to this sort of behavior when it comes to risk profiles. So we haven't seen that much distinction between old captives, traditionally captives, which have been formed during the last cycles and new captives, which are due today. With regard to behavior, there is always a certain degree of pushing, of wanting to have the captive established, where we can only say it takes the time it takes to establish a whole insurance entity with an um, industrial company. And we always advise our yeah. clients to be realistic about the time it takes to form a captive. We have seen some monoline captives to tackle problems in a particular line, but that were a rare exception. And we have seen, but also here, as Yalta mentioned earlier, with regard to ART and retention rates, and there was a lot of talking about the concept of cell captives, but again, there was a lot of talk and nothing picked up so far, at least in Germany. Yeah, I think it's I think it's probably a fair observation that this new generation of captives in Europe do look somewhat similar to uh, traditional captives in a way that I think isn't the case so much in in the United States. I mean, in the United States, there's emergence of all different kinds of economies. Obviously, the crypto market, uh, legalized cannabis businesses are setting up captives, and um, and then obviously that the, the kind of the big tech companies have obviously been setting up captives, and it just hasn't, from my observation, there isn't that same kind of new sector emergence in the same way in Europe as there is on the other side of the pond. Jelto? Yeah, I completely agree, Richard, because I think this the, the regulatory framework which we have in, in Europe forces captives into this very classical traditional thinking. And it would be very challenging to establish these kind of lines of business which we see currently in the US and which we have seen also in the path in the US in the Solvency II frameworks. Therefore, completely agreed in regarding what, what Dirk mentioned regarding the, the PCC concept. I have seen some PCCs being established in Malta by some European companies, but what I have to say is that when it comes to German companies, my perception is that they are very conservative when it comes about like sharing assets with somebody else. So they want to have the full control and therefore, from my personal feeling, the German market is very hesitant opting in the direction of, of sell facilities. The German system is very much in securing the assets within a company and it very much in favor of the debtors it is and it always was that's that's why it inherits a certain degree of conservatism not only when it comes to captive insurance but also when it comes to leverage ratios and the whole setup of industrial entities and so maybe that's explainable from that side yeah, interesting. One of my pet pet projects for many years has been kind of constantly asking the question as to why Luxembourg hasn't come up with protected cell legislation to, to kind of offer a different EU option than Malta. And, and maybe you're right that German companies still wouldn't embrace the concept because of that that lack of confidence in the segregation of, of assets and liabilities. But I, I still think that Luxembourg having PCC legislation would be a great, great addition and attribute to the EU captive landscape and just offer another option and competition for, for Malta on, on that front. So we talked about new in, new captives and the profiles of those. Gelto, obviously, what do you see when a risk manager obviously normally has a traditional role as a risk manager, they're buying insurance in the commercial market and then they have a captive and, and and suddenly that their position changes slightly, they're also possibly responsible for running an insurance company themselves. What does it take for the mindset to change there, do you think, to, to operate uh, effectively? Maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but I like to compare the situation when a risk manager forms a captive with a situation when, when you or I, as, as a young adult, opened my, my first investment portfolio, right? So before... I was only looking for a bank account and some fixed term deposits and more or less focusing only on, on one, two parameters, right? The interest rates. And yeah, then I optimized the, the results. Now, when you open up your, your first investment portfolio, there are so many more things you have to take care about. You have ETF, you have stocks, you have derivatives, you have 
the risk which is coming from you you enter your portfolio you, you look in the app every day and you see the fluctuation especially those days where we have a very unstable economic economic environment and that's more or less also what what i see with risk managers open up a captive because of course on the one side you have the uncertainty which they have to to cope with because now you have the volatility in in your own accounts and you're more or less responsible because if something goes wrong you have to go to your cfo and ask for additional capital and he will ask questions definitely if this goes wrong and on the other side there is the the additional workload you have to learn a lot you have to decide under uncertainty, you you will not be in the position where you know everything right from the beginning. So you have to read a lot, you have to speak a lot to people. And therefore, yeah, it's, it's an additional complexity which comes to the life of the risk manager. And also like very different position, like changing from placing risk and getting rid of risk to a position where you retain risk, where you try to optimize this kind of retention and where you try to create a situation which is beneficial for for the company, although there is something which as human, we try to avoid by nature, right? We are usually risk averse and now you're starting retaining more risk. And therefore, yeah, this is something which, which will change the way how how the risk manager is thinking, I think. And also like premium wise now, he has an interest that premium is not as low as possible, right? So now he has to go out to subsidiaries locally and tell them, okay, we have a captive installed. We need this amount of premium, the captive. I think the discussions were, were very different in the past when the, when the captain was not formed? First of all, you have to make clear in your company that you are now someone who wants to deliver a profit. You're coming from optimizing a certain problem, buying insurance towards a certain price, and you now are looking at a situation where you do insurance to deliver at least some sort of profits, and that changes the way you are perceived in your company. Second thing is you have to become an ambassador for the captive's case because, again, in a situation without a captive, you're delivering insurance which secures the company and opens up, in some cases, the possibility um, of selling some stuff, of the possibility of having a security towards banks, especially in the construction-like business and others. But in the case of the captive, you have to become the ambassador of risk-taking with many, many stakeholders inside your company. And you have to be a lot more active making your point, your pitch, and your sales pitch towards the other parts of the company. And last but not least, you have to act more strategically with regard to uncertainty because you never know what happens you know your risk profile you know that from the perspective of being a risk transferer but being a risk taker you don't know the structural breaks you have to be very careful when it comes to mergers and acquisitions and you have to understand a lot better the whole infrastructure the whole environment within your company so the three things which change and which changes your behavior entirely is a lot more holistic perspective and what i just said you're making a profit now you have to be a salesperson or ambassador for the captive's case inside the whole company and last but not least you have to act more strategically when it comes to risk taking and that is some sort of different profile than to traditional risk managers without a captive so one of the talking about the risk manager two two of the kind of topics which have been definitely problematic and challenging for risk managers in in the past few years have been cyber and dno and they've dominated discussions a lot regarding captives and they divide opinion in terms of how and if they should be insured through captives Dirk, how much activity are you seeing from captives regarding cyber and and what kind of questions are you getting from from clients on this topic we have seen the first captives participating in the cyber program and trying to utilize the captives basically to get additional capacity in from the captive and from the reinsurance market. We have started the discussion recently, Yelto and I pushed that opinion to the broader market and we also discussed that recently on a conference, whether it makes sense to utilize the captives to slice out some sort of the cyber risk to make primary insurers offer higher capacity with regard to the risk it can substantially diversify and bear. There at least 
the discussion starts to open up and we are incredibly curious to follow how this discussion will go and whether we will see such sort of transactions in reality, where the captives slices out some piece of the risk to open up the capacity for the more cyber diversifiable risk. So there are first programs where captives are participating in the cyber risk and trying to bring up more capacity into the company. And we hope we will follow up with the discussions if a captive really can be the door opener towards more structured cyber insurance programs for large corps. And Gelto on the DNO side, do, do clients have clients maybe specifically in Germany been asking you about adding this to the captive and, and how you can support? Is, is it allowed for captives to write DNO through their captive if they're a, if they're a German company? So Richard, when we are speaking about the difficulties around DNO, I would focus on the site A coverage, right? Because site B and site C, it's not so difficult, yeah. but the problem is the site E. And yeah. maybe to, to say a little bit about my perception, in, in, in at least in Germany, what we had, like we had a number of inquiries last year. From my personal feeling, the market is not softening prices are not really going down but what we see that there is some new capacity in the market so the, the requests we receive regarding dno has peaked in 2021 is now slowing down a little bit but still for me it's it's a very interesting question if a dn if a captive can write dno business and it's like not just about the legal perspective when i look into the problem i would just not just focus on the legal perspective but i also would look into different angles because you also have on the one side of course the conflict of interest which is always there even if it's allowed to write it on a legal basis and then on the other side what you have from a fronting perspective which you also have to look into is, is the default risk and yeah you know, first let us look into the in, into the conflict of interest so what you basically have is if, if you have a situation where where your companies use your old directors do you really want to be liable for that in the captive, right? So if you decide to go into this direction, think about this problem you will be facing in this instance. And if at the end you want, as a captive manager, want to pay this this loss at the end. And the second question, basically, you raised is the question if it's legally possible to do it in, in Germany. From my perspective, there are arguments for and against it and there are like many articles which were published during the last years and to be honest there is no definite answer there's no yes and no how you always have it with legal opinion and with legal articles so that's very rare that you get a yes or no at the end and it's not legally tested but from my feeling there are good arguments why in some cases it could be allowed on the German legislation to write DNO business, also site A coverage in Germany. But this doesn't circumvent the problem with the conflict of interest. And on the other side, what we of course have in Europe is that most of the captives just have a reinsurance license. So if they decide to write or to fill capacities in the DNO program, they are still facing the problem how they get the business into the captive. And therefore, they would require a fronter. And there, the third problem I mentioned, which is the default risk kicks in. Because DNO business and the default risk of the parent of the captive are somehow correlated, right? Because when are most companies using their DNO side A coverage? It's when the parent gets into problems, if, if we see some kind of bankruptcy, some insolvency. And the problem is that, yeah, that's what fronters want to avoid, right? They, they always think, okay, we have the captive as a standalone entity, but if something goes wrong, there will be a capital injection from the parent. And in this case, this is like, okay, I guess like if we are looking into some kind of insolvency, if a company gets worse, the financials are getting worse, there is always the risk that capital is extracted from the captive. And at the end, the fronter, it can't get the money from the captive because also when you look at DNO claims, they need like tremendous amount of time to run off. Like you usually have this kind of lawsuits and then this this needs like 10 years. And this is really a nightmare for, for the fronting company. And therefore, 
fronting companies are very, very hesitant to, to look into this, this uh, fronting arrangement. To finally sum it up, from the legal perspective, it might be allowed in Germany. There is no clarity on that. And I guess there will not be any clarity as long as it's not in front of some, some courts, court decisions. When it comes to the conflict of interest, you have to be very prepared and you have to communicate it very well in the organization and think it through if you really want to do that. And the last problem, there are only a limited number of fronting companies I know of who would look into that. Most companies would say clear no to do that. The recommendation can only be to think it through from the end. It is tempting, I think, tempting to utilize your captive you have at hand to fill up some gaps in the program. But imagine the scenarios in which the insurance will actually trigger and then imagine the interests in that scenarios and as a risk manager, your position with regard to the company board, to the board members, to the captive board, to your line managers, whoever is important in the situation, and then think about the interest and whether it makes sense to then have DNO covered by the captive you control or by an insurer or by a reinsurer and um, what's economically sensible and feasible. So thank you to Jelto and Dirk at HGI Global. Really good to have those two on the pod for the first time. And let's stay with the European theme because I'm delighted to say I'm joined again by Luke Harrison, our senior reporter who was at the Firma Forum in Copenhagen last week, meeting with captive owners, risk managers, service providers. Luke, what did you make of the uh, Danish capital? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was lovely to kind of meet uh, a lot of people from the, the Nordic region, which is an area of the world I've not been to before. Um, and I don't really know many people in the industry there. So it was great to connect with them and understand the different cultural perspectives that we have on the insurance industry. Very jealous, actually. I'm a big fan. I've been to Copenhagen once before, fly and visit, and uh, would love to go back. And the Nordic region actually is, is pretty interesting for captors. I think one will definitely explore together more in the future. Kind of in the lead up to the Firma Forum, uh, quite a lot of noise was made about their white paper, which was published in September, titled Ensuring the Transition, which called on the reinsurance industry to do more to support clients in their quest to become carbon neutral and, and, and kind of make that transition. And that was actually one of the, the key themes and topics of the conference, wasn't it? Yeah, it was probably the, the hottest topic at the conference this year. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the role that the insurance industry can play in the green transition, you know, whether on the sort of the commercial side, but also on the captive side. But I, I do think it's important to mention that, you know, it wasn't the only topic there this year. There was a lot of discussion about growing geopolitical risk across the globe and sort of the role that um, the insurance industry can, can help in, in that as well. Let's hear then from some of the people that you spoke to at the forum. Who are we going to hear from first? So I believe we're going to speak to Dr. Ulrich Adam Heitz, uh, which is head of business risk at Vattenfall, and which is an energy company. And he's also a member of the sustainability committee at Firma. But first, we're going to hear from Simon Greemer, who is a board member of Firma. From what I'm gathering, the key teams I think are related to sustainability and also to the uh, sustainability following uh, the pandemic. You know, something that we never uh, envisaged to have at that uh, level. And also uh, sustainability with relations to the energy crisis that we have today due to the war in, uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And so I think the focus is mainly on that and even bringing uh, people, uh, making people conscious of the importance and the need for insurance, insurance people, a career in insurance and a career in risk management, and maybe bringing risk management and insure, insurance people together, not us and them. I very much uh, like the overall topic of um, transitioning together. It's about transition. The whole industries, we all need to transform into this new green deal, into the new future. We have lots of more uncertainty in this world. And so we are together here, both the risk management community, but also risk managers together with insurance companies and brokers. So that's the right forum together to exchange ideas and um, to reflect about the challenges. And the challenges are obvious. It's, uh, we all need to be more resilient against all the external threats we see here. And uh, the 
dynamics are different to 10, 20 years ago. And do you think is there any other ways that the industry can improve uh, in terms of its green transition policies? Yeah, we can always uh, improve, but I think we are on a, in a, a good way, really. I think the challenges are obvious. You see the discussions here within the different panels, but also here at the coffee machine in how far everyone is really aware of the challenges. So it's now right, finding the right way, finding the right balance. So we always can improve, but I don't see now some someone really lagging behind and, and really not having heard the signal. So I, this I didn't see. Really interesting, particularly from Ulrich there, since Vattenfall is a, is a Swedish state-owned energy company, and they're obviously going to have a big eye on transition topics and have big insurance needs around uh, that transition as well. But you also spoke to a few of our captive friends on the energy transition topic specifically, mm-hmm. and the potential role of captives in facilitating their parents' objectives. So who are we going to hear from next? So next, we're going to hear from Mark Pash, who is the Global Head of Alternative Risk Transfer at WTW. And then we'll also going to hear from Claude Weber, who is Managing Director at MAR. And also, we are going to listen to Maureen Charbonnier, who is Captive Regional Director of Europe at AXA XL. How do you think brokers and carriers can support clients in the energy transition? So that's a, that's a very broad and, and, and not, not an easy question. Um, I, think, I think it's first helping companies to quantify, qualify their risks and uh, make sure that this is done on the basis of uh, all the data available. And then looking at the portfolio of risks they have, looking at the risk tolerance, it's making sure that uh, the decision in terms of ensuring or not managing, the mitigating the peril or not uh, is, uh, is aligned with, uh, let's say, the risk level and the appetite for risk. Mm-hmm. And do you think brokers and carriers are doing enough at this current moment in time? We at, uh, at the WTW say grew a very large team looking at these, uh, these perils and, and, and the ways to mitigate them. Uh, so I think the effort is, is there uh, on, the, on the consulting side in general. Is it possible to do more? Probably yes. Uh, it's probably key to get further down to, uh, let's say, the task, for, the task force for uh, the TSFD and be creative in the sense to put on, on its feet new ways and new actions to reduce dioxide of carbon, but also to reduce the exposure to some of the, of the, of the weather perils. Captives are known for plugging gaps in the market where there might be lack of capacity. And some people have said, you know, in certain areas of the energy transition, there are gaps. What, do, what kind of role do you think captives can play in this kind of drive for a greener, uh, a greener economy, greener energy. Number one, it's it's about being conscious on the risks, and, uh, and 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 giving the right measure of those risks. Because you know, when you put a risk from the corporate side into the captive, it's left pocket, right pocket. At the group level, it stays basically the same. So, uh, to, to to in order to have an impact on the level of the risk which is remaining, you need to sell the risk out, out of the captive, if, if you channel it through a captive. But at the end, if there's no capacity directly behind the corporate, why should there be more capacity behind the captive? Now, there's a second thing here, which I think is much more important, is by channeling the risk into the captive, number one, you're helping the divisions mitigate their risk at group level, and so you might help uh, uh, some divisions which have low capital survive some, some losses. That's one, one, one angle, and, 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 and then I think the second angle is accumulation of data. Because if you have uh, your, your, all your entities recording the risk on the climate side, for example, or on the ESG side, you record the data into your books of the corporate, and this data can be very useful because it can help step by step, year after year, be enough to make real transfer mm-hmm. on the basis of, of, of the risks. Are we seeing captives play quite a big role, or do you think you know there's there's more to be done there for for, for captives and, and their involvement in this, this whole a, process? It's a start, rather than something which is very established. It's a start, uh, but it's it's a, it's an education part uh, for for the captive owners to to do it, and uh, and it could be done more. Yes, what we're seeing also here is maybe the, the role which parametric solutions could play into externalizing some of the risk which is stored in the captive outside of groups 
and then finding the right investor or the right reinsurance or reinsure capacity to channel the risk out for, for real. So obviously one of the big themes this year at, at Firma is the kind of transition to, to green energy and the, the insurance industry's role in doing that. But what role specifically do you think captives can play in that, that transition? Yes, whenever you look at the uh, energy sector, so there is quite a bit of criticism on what is going on and there are a large number of companies that try to improve, to try to find solutions and to uh, make the industry cleaner. But as always, whenever there's a transition, there is an, a period where you have some insurers that would already like to get out of all of this business. Others are hesitating, others are charging higher premiums, etc. So during that transition period, I think captives can play a major role just to ensure that the risks are insured for the different operating entities and just to find a solution for this transition period. And so captive retention might help them to find the necessary capacity that they would need for the catastrophe risk, might keep the cost at a reasonable level and so could certainly support this transition. And are we, is it quite common? Are we seeing captives already playing a role in doing this? Yes, there are a number of oil companies or uh, energy companies in general that use their captives for actually uh, closing gaps that they might have, uh, taking higher retentions just to, uh, to allow actually the risk to be covered. And so the captives are clearly part of their strategy to overcome that period. As I said, as partners, we have to understand each other and the way our clients want us to answer for the underwriting, in fact, and their strategy for the transition, because a captive can also support a lot the capacity needs and the specific needs the client has. But we have also to go deeper on what kind of transition they want to go deeper. Uh, is it uh, uh, investment? Is it uh, prevention? Is it so? Yes, we, we are aligned to work all together, especially the captive, uh, understanding each other and with the underwriting also, they were involved in the transition. Great to hear from Mark, Claude and Marine there. Actually, Mark and Claude's first time on Global Captive Podcast, I think, and we'll have to be getting them on again, I'm sure. And it really is a topic of development that I expect we'll be talking about a lot more in the coming months and years as risk profiles change. Luke, great view in Copenhagen last week. You were in Guernsey as well. You dropped in there. Where might listeners see you and us pop up next? Uh, yep. So I think we're, we're both going to be heading to Luxembourg in the middle of November for the European Captive Forum, if I'm correct. Yep. And then I will also be heading out to Cayman for the Cayman Captive Forum at the end of the month as well. Yeah, really, really busy time. Thank you to all of our guests on this week's Global Captive podcast, Sanjay Joshi and Shadrach Kwaza at London and Capital, Dirk Schilling and Jelto Borgman at HGI Global and everyone that Luke had the pleasure to speak to at Firma. Take care, stay safe and see you next time, captives.